0: Now you're listening to Leicester Square Tales, a podcast that captures the voices of the British Chinese diaspora community. I'm your show host, Qin Kai-xie. Each week, I'll be speaking to my guests about their stories and achievements. And together, we'll bring you our commentaries on what happened in the past week. Now, for this week's guest. Today, I'm speaking to my friend Brian from Oxford via Zoom. Uh, Brian is a close friend of mine and a mentor of mine, Brian Wong. Hi, Brian. Say hi to everyone, Brian.
1: Hi, everyone. Hello. Nice to meet all of you.
0: Where, where are you taking this uh, Zoom call right now?
1: I'm taking this call from Hong Kong currently, as we speak. Uh, very beautiful city of Hong Kong. Oh,
0: wow. But yeah, well, joining us uh, for the first ever podcast. I'm really, really excited. Now, could you please briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Say who you are. What are you currently working on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm Brian Wong. I'm a second year infill in political theory at Oxford. And I'm also Rhodes Scholar-elect. So if all things go well, I'll be starting my PhD. or taking my DPhil in political theory uh, from this October onwards in Oxford. I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Political Review. And in my spare time, when I'm not uh, busy coaching, debating, or indeed doing some competitive debating as I've done for the past seven years, I instead spend my time on writing amateurish articles in trying to really just offer some sort of clarity and some sort of insight, whatever that constitutes, into the murky, murky waters that are Hong Kong China relations, uh, the rise of China as a global phenomenon, and also how we should understand the role of political theory and public policy and um, politics.
0: Lester Square Tales is a podcast that I've always wanted to start. And now, with your help, and uh, tons of free time that I have on my hand, we can finally get this started off. So you helped us to come up with the name Leicester Square Tales. When you first think of Leicester Square, what comes to your mind? I think it, it's definitely
1: a smell of Lanzhou noodles um, with a mixture of sort of f- f- fuzzing Chinese, uh, Cantonese cuisine coming out from Wonky and a sort of boisterous shout as folks queue up on a frigid, frigid February uh, evening, and that's what comes to my mind, to be oh, honest. Oh wow,
0: you put such a powerful image right into my head, a buzzing Chinatown, delicious food. That's exactly what I need during this tough time of social distancing. Um, yeah, there's actually a noodle place, not only really talking about noodle, there is a noodle place just across from Leicester Square Station. It's absolutely delicious. I always go whenever I'm in London. I
1: reckon you're talking about the Lanzhou Noodle place I'm talking about because the Lanzhou Noodle place yes.
0: is it's just called Lanzhou Noodle, yes. Exactly. Yeah, it's called Noodle Bar. I think that's what they put in English.
1: So, I'm in Lanzhou, i mean, it's, it's a taste of, literally, a taste of a part of China.
0: <laughs> so, if you listened to the trailer yesterday, what do you make of it?
1: Well, I think it's. It's got that eclectic, cultural mixture about it that I think I quite like, but I've yet to decide on an adjective for it. Eclectic, or uh, some might say it really does capture and encapsulate, I think, the essence of being a British-born Chinese or indeed a British Chinese, which is that you've got the mannerisms of the Brits and then you've also got the authenticity of the Chinese. And when you combine the two, that's when you get the perfect (laughs) combo.
0: Definitely, we should carry this polite and authentic attitude when it comes to this uh, program. Um, so how does it feel, Brian? For once, you're the one being interviewed as opposed to you interviewing other people for your publication Oxford Political Review. Now for all the listeners' benefit, Brian is the co-founder and now editor-in-chief of this Oxford-based publication called Oxford Political Review. And uh, just a couple of names come to my mind. As editor-in-chief, Brian has interviewed scholars, and politicians like Noam Chomsky, Peter Singer, Kevin Rudd, and Gina McCarthy. So yeah, Brian, how do you feel to be interviewed this time?
1: So I've got to admit, it feels quite weird. Um, I spend most of my time these days really just speaking to people that are far more successful than I have been or likely will be. And The overarching impression is you have so much to learn from it because of the way they compose answers, they compose thoughts so eloquently, so succinctly but eloquently, and neither of them is my forte, especially not concision. So being interviewed right now gives you a sense of uh, palpable excitement, but also, I guess, uh, some level of uh, confusion as the extent to which I would actually make sense. You know, I never, never quite know if I will make sense to the audience. So I apologize in advance if I come across as slightly incoherent. Uh, I assure you that is not a usual reflection of my character or personality whatever that is. To well, maybe we don't need six. that
0: elegance in our show. You know, you talk about the authenticity of the Chinese. We just need that authenticity. And your authenticity is coming right through uh, through my screen and through my microphone. So that's perfect, Brian.
1: Well, I reckon you should therefore try and get it repaired at an Apple store before it shuts down then. Oh, wait, it all closed. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Okay, how I want to start this off is I want to start to talk about news, what has been happening and what happened in the past week. I'm bringing your perspective as well as my interest in what's going on in the world uh, to our audience. I mean, maybe I'll kick this off and uh, I'm sure there's other things you can add on. So I think for me, the week has started really on Sunday night last week um, with the Queen giving the televised address to the nation, uh, talking about how we will win the fight Against COVID-19, and it's also on the same night. Uh, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, was sent into a hospital for a checkup, but then it ended up putting him into ICU on the following day. First off, this is only the fifth time in history the monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, has been giving televised address to the nation. Now, did you tune in to the televised address?
1: So I didn't watch the televised address, but definitely watched. I caught snippets of it uh, the day after. And I think what what I felt when I watched speech really is just at the end of the day, you can be anti-monarchist and oppose the royal family all you like. You write all of these long posts, all of these long arguments, but but at the end of the day, you know the royal family is a symbol and a, a legacy in in British culture. And like it or not, you know its existence, seemingly because of the way we construct meaning or establish so-called value, seems to transcend transcend time, transcend a lot of social class divides. And of course, some might say, no, it actually perpetuates social class divides. It perpetuates all of these inequalities. I get that. But the real question really that I, uh, uh, particularly resonated with me when I listened to speeches, speech is what is the counterfactual? What, kind of what is the alternative to the royal family? Because it's not likely to be one where Britain suddenly becomes you know, this all egalitarian socialist kumbaya world where Jeremy Corbyn, I suppose, would have liked to see before he got kicked out. Well, I think the reality is Britain without the royal family would be one that is even more splintered, divided, and in pain. In pain, if that's the right phrase for it. Splintered by class, driven apart by racial divisions, and fundamentally, you know, with the entrenchment of existing social and community-based cleavages, it's unlikely that a world or Britain without the royal family is a more egalitarian or more consociational one. If anything, it's likely to be more fragmented in a way that fundamentally undermines redistribution, but also undermines a sense of solidarity when it comes to being British. And as much as I am in many ways, not a fan of the Conservative Party as it currently stands, there was a rare moment where it came across to me, or struck me rather, that a Britain could be founded on something other than politics, or at least it could create an identity that temporarily unites most of the folks in a country forcing them or compelling them to set aside political differences, are not that as a good phenomenon, I'm not so sure. Obviously, there are reasons to think about politic, depoliticization, per Michael Frieden, per you know Aaron's critique of the modern human condition. there's not exactly a great good in and of itself. There might be reasons to find that depoliticizing inherently political contradictions is merely a way of mollifying the masses. But at times of national crisis, at times in a country is Getting driven apart by this pandemic. I yeah,
0: really. wouldn't be expecting this kind of view. I, I was glad, you, but and for that moment, I was also shocked that
1: effect. I was glad. I was glad. Given
0: that there was a the uniqueness of the British political system, uh, Queen Elizabeth II is also our head of state. It seems to be official and necessary of her to deliver this message, and certainly for all of my Chinese friends, they've all been sharing and posting the queen's message uh, on WeChat. The royal family definitely has a huge following uh, among all my Chinese
1: friends. I must must say that despite everything I've said, uh, we must be wary of, you know, sauntering uh, very rapidly into the royalty obsession territory. I don't want to come across as fetishizing the royalty, my dear friend. And it does seem at times that all this, you know, tourism legacy stuff, like at the end of the day, we're all born equal. We should be born equal. Uh, It's nice that we have tourism. It's nice that we have a symbol of national unity, but let's also not not forget the uh, intriguing royal family when it comes to uh, Markle and when it comes to how it's handled those that fail to conform to the royal family's stereotypical imaginary of what counts as good British royalty. And I think you know, what happened to, to Meghan and Harry really is exemplary of that particular Fact, right? It exemplifies precisely that sort of closed-mindedness that we also should be wary of. Concurrently,
0: well, definitely, one thing you are right is people start to pay attention to the concept of what is being equal um, in front of this global pandemic. People of different background and different wealth are they equally vulnerable in front of this disease, or does it mean if you're wealthy, you're almost certainly better equipped to deal with this pandemic? I mean, one interesting case we've heard on the news is the Scottish Chief Medical Officer. I was found to breach her own rules set out in her press conference. She was found in her second home a holiday home. But now really what got me thinking is, what about people who live in console flats, uh, who live in apartments, who have no holiday home, Well, wealthy people can go out in their gardens So when the weather gets warm, despite the government giving the same instruction to everyone, stay at home, it's gonna be a lot difficult for people who are living in poorer conditions to actually stick to the government instruction. The other realization I had is this crisis actually gave us the opportunity to reevaluate whether each occupation is equal. So certainly we see people who work in financial services, people who are skilled workers, Uh, office workers being able to work from home but we say uh, some manual workers often not very skilled are still working on the front line Uh, especially delivery services uh, people who are junior doctors often at the bottom of the pay scale but it is because of them Um, our society can function as normal in this difficult time we should definitely appreciate the fact each occupation is contributing something to our society. Now, the other news story of the week is Boris Johnson is still in hospital after being admitted to the hospital on Sunday night due to persistent symptoms of COVID 19. The Washington Post's random story, the headline says, Love him or hate him, Britons won the Prime Minister home from the hospital. Do you think this is another? politically unifying moment where people put aside their differences their political stances and return to their kindness and simply wishing the prime minister a speedy recovery and creating this atmosphere of the whole country united together behind its leader going forward
1: I think that's a fair question. Um, my my take is, obviously, this crisis compelled a lot of folks to seemingly set aside differences, wish everyone well, nice wishes, all of that. But I don't really think it's setting politics aside when it comes to, like, critique or when it comes to interaction. In so much as an imbuement, I wonder if you, you saw this article, actually, in so much as an imbuement, I think, of a higher form of politics, a, a more fundamental form of politics. So to speak. So if you look at David Runciman's latest Guardian article, which is a, a spot-on take in my opinion of why political theory, particularly Hobbesian theory, really is quite useful in diagnosing the sort of zeitgeist or the current epoch that we live in, which is that ultimately the political question is one about power, is one about the state versus the other. It's about this state of exception rather, and how exactly we as a political collective manage existential threats, manage and cope with existential risks. And the attitude of national solidarity and unity is not a deep political, you know, humanitarian attitude grounded in this random abstract uh, sense of moralism. It's instead a deliberately calculated, deliberately perpetuated, and I think strategically so, attitude that says, right, lads, let's pack up and focus on the bigger enemy at hand. So you might be a Tory and you dislike Labour and you dislike Jeremy Corbyn, you might also be a rabid Labour supporter, uh, sorry, a, a very staunch Labour supporter, I stand correct in my use of awful language, staunch Labour supporter who supports the Tories, vice versa. And yet, at this particular moment, your, your biggest enemy isn't the other Tory living right across your street, isn't that Tory MP that you've always wanted to get rid of and contest even though you, your seat is a safe seat, isn't that Lib Dem whose dying party has actually escaped your mind for a while anyway, and has escaped your mind even more because you've forgotten which party you are from entirely. Maybe that's not so rare for a party, for which I do have quite a lot of time, but nevertheless, sadly, uh, has limited electoral success in actuality. But the the bottom line here, really, is you forget about these political labels and identities because of a bigger political enemy, a bigger political other. And I have a worry here, Kai, which is the identification of political other by the Brits has, the in, has almost an insidious undercurrent to it, to some extent, in that everyone is united against COVID-19. But have we started thinking, really, and acknowledging about the very fact that alongside this moment of national unity, there's also been a rising tendency to associate COVID-19 with the Chinese ethnicity. And it is that portrayal of Chinese migrants, Chinese diaspora, Chinese ethnic groups, or indeed Asians within the UK, as potential carriers of the disease, we need to watch out for that. Because whilst we're all talking about National Unity in a rosy picture, glory days, let's also not forget that behind the scenes, under the sort of woodworks, or coming out of the woodworks, are loads and loads of insidious racist comments, racist remarks that really should be quite worrying for anyone who identifies as a Brit because regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of where you're from, you should be entitled to equal respect. But this is a really important point because the moment we forget that we're united in morally speaking, by our common precariousness is the moment when we get carried away by our own identities and labels and constructed hierarchies to justify, to justify the asymmetrical distribution of precarity to borrow from Judith Butler's analysis of social movements and precarity there.
0: Very well said from a political theory and political sociology perspective. I completely agree with you there, Brian. I also feel really strongly about the negative and incorrect and unfunded remarks against the Chinese community. People are saying the Chinese people invented this coronavirus, which I think is outrageous and bizarre. This further created the unnecessary prejudice against the Chinese group. Now I'm wondering, what is the way out of this? How do we combat those of incorrect, ignorant racist comments? And one article I came across is Cambridge University has recently conducted a research and they are they now identified the evolutionary path of COVID-19 virus. They basically identified three different strands of viruses, A, B, C, uh, so the one originated from the Chinese city Wuhan is type B, but the one is spreading in America, in Europe, are distinctively different to the type B virus that was identified in China. Do you think this evidence, scientific evidence, could be used to dispel those kind of racist remarks and commentaries?
1: Now. Here's my take, you know, I think fundamentally, I'm not a scientist. And I think the first thing we should always remember as people who are so-called or kind of self-identify as educated people is that we need to be actively wary and conscious of what we're not educated about. We are a so-called political theorist, which I don't even count myself as one because I haven't got the training yet to be, I think, a proper one, but I aspire to become one. As political theorists, we don't know public science. We don't know public health. I think self-aggrandizing, know-it-all attitude isn't helpful. It's epistemically arrogant. It's also epistemically disingenuous. But long-winded rant aside, my response to your question is, I think the science on the COVID-19 virus is far less settled than a lot of ideological critics and propagandists from all countries in the world like to make it out to be. So you yeah, have one side saying, oh, this country came from this lab in this other country. And then the other side goes, no, no, no. This virus is obviously planted in our country by another country in order to undermine our very own national self-interest. We don't know. We just do not know. And the moment we start letting conjectures get to the sort of rush our heads and start taking over or indeed dominating over our rationality is the moment when we're setting a very dangerous precedent in the way we understand the world around us. So in response to your question, I'm sorry I don't have a direct answer because frankly, I don't think we can directly answer that as of yet. How many months are we into this outbreak you know how many months are we in well, we're only o- slightly over five months into this outbreak or four months depending on what whose numbers you believe in and w- we need to be wary really or, or almost be vigilant against over zealously coming to conclusions coming to so-called sort of decisions about what is right or wrong humans are so fallible humans are so arrogant and yet humans always love jumping to conclusions i think that is what really scares me, coming out from all of this mess.
0: Hmm. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of policymakers, um, how are we gonna have a gradual exit to lift the social distancing and to return to a normal life, to bring the community together? Um, You know, I've heard uh, ideas floating around uh, the concept of immunity certificate. And I think it's really concerning. It's a bizarre idea as well. Um, but that's only being talked about in the West. It's coming from German researchers. But little did I know that has actually been practiced and put in use uh, in China last month. Uh, so in the province of Hangzhou, um, they've been using a thing called health code. Uh, it, it integrated with the Alipay, Tencent, WeChat. You have this um, QR code. And there it displays three different colors. If you are green, you are free to use everything, all the facilities using this electronic passport effectively. Um, But if your color is either red or yellow, you have to be quarantined or isolated for a corresponding amount of time. Do you think this idea will be practical to help us to come out from this lockdown?
1: Well, I think. Any such measures have to consider a multiplicity of factors, really. The first is the desirability of having what is arguably actually a minimally interventionist measure that allows us to monitor and track people's movements, but also operate as a de facto filter to prevent the infected from accessing public spaces, transportation, and all of that. If you phrase it nicely and euphemistically, you can call that ah, public health management or indeed population management. But then that sounds, you know, increasingly alarming as you go down the, the, the trail from population management to uh, population control to imposition of restrictions and civil liberties against people with particular dispositions. And then it's becoming slightly less comforting to hear as the language gets increasingly to us, increasingly clinical and dehumanizing. What does this suggest? This suggests to us that there's a symmetric countervailing burden that every time we try to employ these quarantine measures, these isolation measures, these restrictions on movement and freedom of movement, we are also undertaking and implementing as a state political decisions about limiting the ability to lead normal lives, ordinary lives, and even basic lives of a sizable or potentially sizable chunk of a population. Is this justified? Now, if you're a Hobbesian or if you're a fan of some sort of of utilitarian consequentialist aggregative conception of morality, you might say, boom, great idea. But if you're someone who believes that rights and liberties operate more than just as utilitarian counters or so-called utility bundles, but also as trumps, not Donald Trump, but trumps, to use the language of Dworkin, or as constraints, then you might start thinking, okay, this this seems a bit dodgy. Yeah. And my overarching conclusion is, for me, I think there's value in liberty at the expense even of utility. And this is why we need to think twice. We need to think very, very carefully about decisions to limit people's movement, exit, and entry. Because at the end of the day, these are not just floating atomic individuals that have nothing to do with your state. These are individuals that pay taxes, these are individuals that work in the economy that benefit you as a governing elite, or benefit you as the ordinary citizen. And if you don't factor these into consideration, then you end up becoming, I think, unscrupulous, Machiavellian, even, in your instrumentalism towards human lives. With that said, with all of that grandstanding said, reality is cruel. Lockdowns have proven to be necessary. Social distancing without enforcement seems to be inefficacious. So, obviously, there's a trade-off between efficacy in times of great adversities and calamities versus a fetishizing efficacy when you could make trade-offs just to allow for more representation and genuine recognition of people's rights. So that, that's my takeover.
0: Oh, well, you've indeed painted us a really miserable picture of the world, a rather dangerous view uh, of what's going on right now. Um, and I'm wondering whether there's something always going on in the head of a political philosopher, someone who you are, Brian. Now let's lighten the mood up a little bit by talking about something positive. Uh, leave that miserable picture behind. Is there any good news uh, that you want to share with us? Something happened in the past week in your life, or something you've noticed, something that would cheer you up, that you want to share with our listeners?
1: Well, I got the very, very pleasant piece of news that uh, I've been, oh, well, I'll be interviewing. Um the one and only Joseph Stiglitz on Monday in the upcoming week. And I look forward to conversation.
0: Congratulations. Now, this is indeed fantastic news and well brought up as well. This just moves our conversation from discussing the news onto talking about your story. So one of my initial objectives of creating this podcast is I get to speak to my friends, and also meet new people who might be strangers, who I got to know through this program to talk about what's going on in their life and what are their achievements that really worth us to celebrate and remember. Obviously for you, Brian, the publication that you co-funded, Oxford Political Review, um, is a big thing. You had many successful interviews with some leading political thinkers and politicians for the publication. But the question I just want to ask you is what motivated you to start this project? What motivated you to co fund Oxford Political Review?
1: Well, so I started OPR really with just one fee- an overarching feeling in mind. I felt that Oxford had a lot of academic talents, a lot of brilliant, brilliant postgrad and undergrad students, and yet, despite all of the human capital it had, there was no Way for it to have a public-facing face in terms of political commentary and writing. You'd either have sporadic pieces and contributions to newspapers, or you'd have, uh, admittedly, in my opinion, very, very good student newspapers like Cherwell and Oxde. But there was no sort of intermediary, really, that sort of that branched out beyond merely student journalism that engaged Oxford students in talking about, in talking about, and grappling with the political issues of our times in a concerted and also organized platform. So at the moment when I struck, or was struck by this thought, I immediately spoke with a few friends of mine, my co-founders, um, Nick Lear, Guy Cavacante, Michael Shao, and Chang. And we said, you know, given all of that and what's going on right now, surely, surely, you know, we can make a difference as Oxford students. And we looked at the world around us. It was so polarized, you know? It was post-Brexit 2016, Britain was recording from the aftermath of, actually, sorry, not post Brexit. Post Brexit vote, pre Brexit.
0: Well, there seems to be a small mistake in the wording, but a <laughs> big difference. Some may say.
1: Well, not, not not much of a difference, to be honest. In my opinion, it's a, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting tragedy either way. But 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 with that said, there was also the US, very much divided as a result of you know the rising populism in the left and also the, the extreme far-right dominating politics in many ways. So, so I was left there with a question of how can we bridge the gap? How can we bridge all sides, really? And coming from Hong Kong, you know, the idea of bridging different camps and different factions really resonated with me. Because at the end of the day, Hong Kong remains a deeply polarized polity where there's a lot of antagonism, a lot of schism, and yet no one wanted to talk about or wants to talk about healing. You know why? Because it doesn't gain them votes. You gain votes by, you know, dragging out conflict, instigating and inflaming identity politics and wars. But you don't get votes by talking about bridging differences and bridging gaps and all of that. So I was left to thinking, okay, in light of my background, in light of my personal convictions, how can I make a difference to the world? And that's what I roped in people, far more talented than I am, really. You know, Nick, incredible, incredible administrator and editorially exceptional. Chang is one of the best copy editor, deputy editors I've ever met. Xiao has a brilliant business brain, and Gee. you know, we go back a very long way. So we decided to put, put this publication together, and, and it's taken off since then. And obviously, I wanted to go further, and I wanted to evolve, really, into a publication that is written by students, but is read by many, many non-students. And that's what we want to be, really, a sort of student-led, but nevertheless professional, professional or at the very least, not just student journalism in that sense. Not to say that student journalism is bad, but to say that we want to do something different. We want to make a difference to the way publication and discourse works in the world out
0: there. Well done. I think this is definitely a very bright outlook for the Oxford Political Review in the future. And as your podcast editor, I'm incredibly honoured to be your team member and trying to put what you've just said, all your visions into practice, or at least into writing and to communicate the ideas that our politics students have to the general public. Now, it's been a long personal journey for you as a student from Hong Kong came to Oxford to pursue the study of politics and now is on track to be a Rhodes Scholar. Can you tell us about your experience uh, in studying at Oxford?
1: I'm really grateful for having you on board, Cheng You know, it's a real pleasure. So I came, the first time I ever set foot in the UK, and you might not believe this, but the first time I ever set foot in the UK was in 2014, when I was, if I remember correctly, 16 years old. So so I came here to to have my interview at Oxford. So that was the first time I ever set foot in the UK, really. So the feeling is, um, it, 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 it was quite a different cultural setting and definitely had a bit of a cultural shock and the reason i say that is i come from hong kong which is in many ways i think uh, not in any serious sense a sort of uber western city i think it is a nice mix and match really of different spheres you've got the western spheres you've got the, the more traditional chinese spheres and all of that but coming to britain i experienced immediately a sense of cultural shock a sort of Bizarre, bizarre appreciation, really, of something that my education system was modelled after, and yet, at its core, so different from Hong Kong's education system. Brits, especially the sort of top crop there, emphasise discourse, emphasise debate, oratorical skills, or autonomy and independence in thinking. Whereas Hong Kongers, I think, in, in the education sense, I don't mean to essentialize, but I am indeed essentializing here, focus a lot more on discipline on rituals, on the stamina to continually learn and continually recite facts and all of that. Facts, 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 and more facts. Why am I reciting hard times? I do not know. Maybe because the city is undergoing hard times. But uh, Dickens aside, I think the feeling there was definitely that uh, I'd found a new spot, a new muse that I think vibed more with me, so to speak. To use a colloquialism of our times, that, that kind of I got and understood more in the sense of learning to learn, learning to argue, and learning to criticize and disagree. So long story short, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that Oxford's given me, and I'm even more grateful then for the opportunities that Rhodes Scholarship um, has afforded me, as you said just in a question. I'm very honored and grateful for the scholarship opportunity, and I hope to you know, make good use of it, really, in making a difference to the world we live in. And that often is easy, more easily said than done. But then if you don't talk about something, how can you do it?
0: Brian's remark has naturally brought our conversation to an end. I thoroughly enjoyed this experience of having conversation with Brian Wong in this capacity. Brian has been a friend of mine for two years since I came to Oxford. I've always known Brian as a competitive debater someone who is really intelligent and giving out this highly critical comments on current political and social issues. But when I was telling him, uh, I said, dude, I'm doing this podcast. Do you want to be my first guest? I kind of realized this is a really difficult first speaker for me to interview and having conversations with. And as you can see in the previous conversation that I had with him, when I asked him questions he just started to give out this natural responses, but very well-composed uh, uh, remarks. And then he just become unstoppable. I think that also gives you a little bit of insights into uh, our first podcast guest, Brian Wong. But one thing he said really resonated with me is he said, it is more easily said than done. But if you don't talk about it, how could you do it? It really shows the role of this podcast can play in the British Chinese diaspora community. This could be the voice for us to speak up and to really showcase different stories and personalities within the community. So uh, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed my first episode with Brian Wong and stay tuned with our next speaker coming up. In each episode, I will introduce you to individuals from completely different background, uh, industries and career paths to come to the program to share their stories. And I'm sure there will be something inspirational, something useful for you to take away. If you like our program, please follow us We are now on Facebook, we are now on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, So give us a like and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.